He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, October 31st, 2020. Happy Halloween. We're going to start today with the closing. Zadie's Deli, a Denver institution since the early 90s, gone but not forgotten. Legendary Denver restaurateur Gerard Rudovsky is my first guest, telling you who and what he blames for Zadie's sad and unexpected demise. Although with the pandemic, anything is capable of closing now. But oy, when Zadie's was alive, what a delicious place to go and what great conversations were held there. Next up, it's time for sex. Sex talk with renowned sex and couples therapist, Lisa Thomas. Lisa is a lifelong family friend, just like Gerard Rudovsky. She's incredibly accomplished with the busy practice of therapy for couples, some singles, people looking for help with their mental health, and especially around sex issues. It's time we talked sex on this show, and we are going to do so. But careful with me. I'm a virgin when it comes to talking about sex on this broadcast. But really, how do people survive in this pandemic era, in this age of Trump, which might soon be over? How about people arguing about politics? Can you imagine? One is for Trump, the other not so much. That's a problem. And then when it comes to the pandemic and really sex as well, what is your risk tolerance? And if a couple's not on the same page, what do you do about it? Lisa Thomas, what a great interview. After food and sex, it's time for marijuana. And we have that today in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. A return visit from a Denver boy done great, Christian Cedarberg, who went to Regis High School, CU Law School, named partner in Denver's top marijuana firm, Vicente Cedarberg. They're not just in Denver anymore. They are international. Wait till you hear my conversation with Christian Cedarberg, who is a bigwig in the cannabis industry. But he will break away from that role where he needs to be a little bipartisan and tell you what he thinks about Donald Trump and Jared Polis. Of course, we are talking politics with the election just a few days away. You know how I feel. Donald Trump needs to be repudiated. And let me predict that will happen. Let's start with the closing of Zadie's and a Denver legend, Gerard Rudovsky. Enjoy. Oh, what a world, what a day, what a life. It's been led by Gerard Rudovsky. I've had the pleasure of knowing Gerard and his fine Rudovsky family for a long time, but you probably know him as the owner, operator of a legendary Denver restaurant called Zadie's. Sad news during this pandemic era, we hear that Zadie's is closing. Let's find out why from Gerard Rudovsky. Gerard, Thanks a lot for being on my show. Absolutely. 
tell us what happened. How did you make the decision to close Zadie's? And before you tell everybody, most people who listen to me are familiar with Zadie's. Describe your restaurant, when it began, and what has just happened. Well, Zadie's actually was my dream in 1985 when I first opened it. It was downtown near the courthouse. It wasn't a full deli. It was uh, breakfast and lunch. I had a partner, Rocco Scatella, who was Italian, so we did Jewish and Italian food. And it was a place where people would come. It was like comfort. It was like community. And it evolved. And then we decided to move to Cherry Creek. And that was in 1992. And we were there for 28 years in Cherry Creek. And of course, with the pandemic and the economy, it was a very tough time. It is a tough time, I should say. And we decided that, well, my son mainly was running that that was time to close because we couldn't keep up with a financial burden that evolved with the COVID and people were reluctant to come into restaurants. We had some seating outside, but not enough. We had to redo the inside and that took a toll. And so the decision was made to unfortunately close it. And we've had some wonderful comments from people from New York to LA and Denverites whose families grew up there and celebrated their lifetime events from births and bar and bat mitzvahs, unfortunately, to cater for funerals. But this was all like one big family that uh, I envisioned it to be a, a community and a city place where people would feel comfortable to come for comfort food and conversation and engagement with people. What a beautiful summation of a restaurant that meant so much to so many people, including me. These are the worst of times. I hope they get better. But gosh, we lived through some of the best of times. Let's back up, Gerard. You said Sadie's was your dream. Tell everybody where you grew up and how you came to adopt that dream. I grew up on the West Side, which was like a very tight-knit Jewish community. And I remember going in grade school on Fridays, which is the beginning of the Shabbat, and in the springtime, everybody would have their windows open and the smell of Shabbat cooking because Friday night was always a, a big meal with all the Jewish delicacies that we've known over the years. And it just resonated with me that this is something to remember and to try and put it into action. So I was able to cater a lot with some Jewish caterers of Denver at our synagogue at the Hebrew Educational Alliance for dinners and breakfast that a caterer, very prominent, Lil Spire, who was just the ultimate uh, Jewish caterer in the city. And I, ha I was lucky to work with her and get the feeling of why it was so important to carry this kind of food and recipes and to keep it going. Because as we go along, people forget. And as our kids grow up, they didn't have the same uh, experience that I did. Wow. The names you bring up, the legendary Lily Spire, who catered so many bar mitzvahs and happy occasions, just like you ended up doing. 
You became a fan of mass-producing great Jewish food. When you think of Jewish food, what comes to your mind? Oh, what comes to my mind? Chopped liver, brisket, roast chicken, blintzes. We made all that from scratch. Stuffed cabbage, potato latkes, uh, all these kinds of things that evoke these wonderful aromas and smells that couldn't be replaced. And so that was chicken soup, of course, with matzo balls and kreplach. Tell everybody what kreplach is. Kreplach are a stuffed dumpling. It's almost like a, um, oh, uh, at the Chinese restaurants. Wontons. Wontons. But these are stuffed with chopped brisket and onions that are sautéed, and it's in the uh, chicken soup. So they're dumplings and delicious, and that's kind of a a lost art too today. Everybody, all the uh, cooks, Many years ago, including my mother and my grandmother, would make these things by hand or grind the kafilta fish by hand, which is now really made in Cuisinarts and all these new kitchen equipment. Right. And when you're talking about the AGA, Hebrew Educational Alliance, you're talking about when it was on Stewart Street near Sloan's Lake. And is that where they caught the carp to turn into gefilte fish? Sometimes they did. Uh, Yeah, there was a uh, gentleman called Mr. Sosny who sold the fish live, and a lot of people would bring them home live and put them in their bathtubs until they were ready to uh, process them. So the fish, you could go into a lot of Jewish homes at that time, and you would see carp swimming in the uh, bathtubs until it was right. ready to and be made. my grandma Goldie's house, 1,400 block of equipment, but you knew that. You probably knew my right. grandma Goldie as well as I did. Right, and it was not only her. There was another lady called the Fish Lady. I don't remember her name, but she also processed gefilte fish, or the fish for the gefilte fish. And that was a wonderful staple. The fish, everybody looked forward to it with red horseradish and pickles. And that was another one of the wonderful foods that people love to have, especially on the holidays, on Rosh Hashanah. I love Jewish food. I love the smells. And I can still get that feeling when I was a little kid walking around the neighborhood pre-Shabbat with all this wonderful smell that and families getting together and just celebrating the Sabbath with this wonderful array of home-cooked food. And there was always a lot, always a lot. My grandmother, Perlmutter, used to cook a lot on Friday because Saturday she was religious and didn't cook. But you could always go over there for lunch and there would be a whole array of all the food that she cooked on Friday. So it was a real wonderful experience. I think you retired on top because I never had a bad meal at Zadie's and I never had bad service. I mean, you can't beat that. Cherry Creek is a little distant from me now, but I'm remembering downtown and I remember the location right across from the courthouse where I had one of the most memorable lunches of my life. But we'll get to that. I just want to compliment you. Let's get to some name dropping since I'm going to drop some names on you. Sure. I I bet you've had every kind of famous person come through your doors. What stands out? Well, we had, of course, we had David Gregory. The guy was taller than me, 6'7". Right. He came in one day with his wife, 
And he said, you know, Gerard, we're moving, but we lived in Denver and right near you. And we used to come in all the time and he loved it. Right. Uh, Don't worry. He met his wife in Denver, his his wife, Beth Wilkinson, who was on the Oklahoma City bombing trial case that was held in Denver. And that's where I got to know David Gregory. I didn't know that they were big Sadie's fan. Keep going. So Jackie Mason had come in. We had some wonderful meetings with, uh, I mean, not meetings, but guys, a bunch of lawyers and judges come in on Sunday. Frankie Reno and John Kane, and there was a whole table for many years. They would all come in on Sunday mornings. Gary Lozo, a bunch of the guys from the courts and judges and Judge Harrell. Al Harrell, yeah. Yeah, they would come in. And then on Saturdays, we had another group of gentlemen. Al the way he pronounces it, right. Judge right. Harrell. Judge Harrell. Right. And, so, and then, of course, Walter Garash. Now, Walter, when I first opened that town, we had a little patio, and he would sit out there and sunbathe while he would eat because his office was in this old building, but he would come around the corner and sit and sunbathe and eat on this little patio. And as years went by, he lost some of his verve, but sometimes I would go pick him up and bring him so he could be with the other guys. Those were all people that just made a big difference and created like a family of Zadies. I'm surprised John Hickenlooper wasn't mentioned. You must know him. I think I think he was there once or twice. I think Hickenlooper was there. I think Steve Farber used to come in a lot. Sure. Just a whole array. Barry Hirschfeld, all kinds of people from all walks of life. And even though it was purportedly a Jewish deli. When I first opened, there was his family. He was a lawyer, Mr. Crofty, to go to a Jewish deli. And so every year, he and his family would come to Zadie's on Christmas Day. And yeah, it it just was a very homey, comfort, welcoming kind of place that I loved and had the people that made it what it was. It was fantastic. My dominant memory of your first location right near the city and county building, near Walter Grash's office, right. uh, was a meeting I had with Rabbi Daniel Goldberger of right. Blessed Memory. After Norm Early said, hey, I'd like you to take over the Frank Rodriguez death penalty case, I said, boss, can you give me the file and give me a week to think about it? Because I did not know the Jewish position on capital punishment And Rabbi Goldberger agreed to meet with me at Zadie's, and we sat, and he told me all about it. So how about that for a memory? Yeah, there's a lot of of good things and a lot of people having business meetings there. But you must have known Rabbi Goldberger really well. You ended up being president of the alliance. When he he came to the alliance after many years at the Beth Joseph, Right. My shawl, you stole Rabbi Goldberger from our shawl at Beth Joseph. Way to go. Right. But he was actually my mentor, and we were making changes at our synagogue, and he was very liberal, and all for the changes, he realized that if we wanted to go on and be successful, the things that I suggested he found necessary in order to grow the congregation. And we did. We moved and we became egalitarian. And he was always uh, positive about doing all of that. 
What a great guy he was. My late father totally. spoke the world of Rabbi Goldberger. He knew him from when yeah. he first arrived in town. And my dad always said he was a good athlete. And I know that because I played ball against his sons. But do you remember when Rabbi Goldberger got to town? Yeah. Well, I don't remember. I think it was in 49, but I'm not sure. And he succeeded, right. At HEA, you've had nothing but legendary rabbis. And how often do I get to talk on a podcast with Gerard Rudofsky, who knew these people? I did not really know Rabbi Manuel Laterman, another blessed memory. The emergency room at Denver Health is named after him. But I bet you know a lot about this late, great rabbi. Oh, yeah. Well, Rabbi Lederman, of course, uh, married us, but uh, also they lived two doors away from us on the west side. And so we were in and out of each other's houses because we were friends with his children. But he was a real mentor. He had been with the Alliance for 49 years. His wife, Bess, was very instrumental in dealing with Denver Health. And that's why they have named the trauma center in his memory. They were very community oriented, a modern rabbi that at that time when they came in 1949, most rabbis had beards. He didn't have one. And so he and he was also very liberal, didn't make as many changes until Rabbi Goldberger came and realized that this is what we had to do but two great rabbis that made a name for themselves and for our synagogue. It's so funny you use the word liberal. And when I grew up, I went to Beth Joseph, and I always thought we were a little to the left of the Alliance, but we were not nearly as far liberal as Temple Emanuel. We were in the middle, yet it was called conservative, and now you're using the word liberal. How do these words conservative and liberal work in the Jewish world? Well, liberal, uh, well, I call it liberal or egalitarianism, where women were included in the service. And you're right, Beth Joseph actually really was in the middle because there were certain traditions that they had. And I was wanting to change the alliance more to the left because I thought for younger people, you had to be a little bit more liberal and including more English, so people could come. And so, yeah, and the alliance was what they called modern orthodox. But when Rabbi Goldberger changed, we changed some of that and had started that mixed seating and then, of course, went to uh, full mixed seating. But the rabbis were very receptive of the changes that needed to be made in order for the synagogues to continue. It occurs to me in talking about Rabbis Lederman and Goldberger that in that pyramid of great Denver Jewish leaders, that includes you, Gerard Rudofsky, because of your contributions to one of the most important synagogues around, the Alliance, and Zadis, what you did there. Tell everybody what Zadie means in Jewish. Zadis means in Jewish grandfather, and that's what we called our grandfather, and uh, my grandparents, Abe and Dora Perlmutter, were just instrumental in our lives growing up. And uh, when I first started the idea of a restaurant, I had a name picked out and someone had a different name, uh, similar to what I wanted. And they said, well, you can use it, but this is how much I want. And so we said no. So my daughter, Jamie, at 12 years old, 
said to me, Dad, you ought to call it Zadie's because those are the kind of people that would love to come to your restaurant. And so it began. She was 12 years old at the time. She is now 48. And she was the one that named it because she realized the impact of grandparents, Zadie and Bubby, in Yiddish, that would have on the restaurant. What a great name. And the word Zadie is just perfect because my dad, of course, became Zadie once we all had kids. And that becomes easy for the daughter-in-laws or son-in-laws. You just become Zadie. I bet that's what everybody in your family calls you. Or am I wrong? Right. No, so, well, so my little grandson calls me Zay-Zay. But as I say, whatever they call me, as long as they call me. But Zadie has been a big part of our life, the name Zadie and Booby, which just evokes very warm and wonderful memories of them. Now, I would say Zadie's had, what, about 50 or 100 conversations going on at any one time. And you walked around. How early in the morning did you get to Zadie's most of the years you ran it? Well, sometimes I'd get there, you know, 536 because I did the baking early on. But then we got some bakers. It was always nice to greet people and to see people and people. I know myself and you're probably too going into a restaurant and having the owner know you by name and greet you like that made you feel important. Even if you were just a run of the mill guy on the street or whatever, if they knew your name and the restaurant owner acknowledged you, it was a big deal. That was also a big part of, I thought, running a restaurant that to know the people. And many times we became friends with a lot of these people that uh, were in our life. And it just made a big difference all around. Here's everybody's dominant image, if I can speak for the whole world, when they walk into Zadie's. They open the door and you're looking right at the counter with all the delicious stuff. And you see people working behind the counter. That would include Gerard, who was hustling his ass off, but still had the wherewithal to say, hey, Craig, welcome. And then you were escorted to a great seat. And then you'd come by and you'd give it kibitz. And that's what I was driving out. How many different conversations did you have going every day? And how did you avoid controversy? Because when I have conversations, sometimes it becomes controversial. And how do you do it? It's a, a balance, and there were people uh, that would come in, and uh, you know, you talk to them. But you know, if it's politics, you had to be very careful and walk a fine line. And I did, but for the most part, for the most part, everybody was in line with my idea of politics and the people involved. But you you had to be careful and be tolerant of other people's thoughts and feelings. And if it wasn't to your liking, you just, you know, you, I excused myself or walked away, but didn't make them feel that they were not wanted. Right. And that was pretty easy in past years. But during the time of Trump, it's hard to keep your opinions about that to yourself. And now that you're not running a restaurant, you are liberated, Gerard. Do you have any thoughts about politics right now in the age of Trump? Well, I think um, it's an awful time, a very divisive time. 
I will tell you, it, when he was first elected in 2016, and they had the inauguration, I had several calls from people, and they said, are you going to have the, we had television in there, are you going to have the inauguration on? And I said, no, I'm not. They said, well, then we will come. So there was that feeling, and 90% of it was against what Trump was standing for. And so people knew that they could come there and not be intimidated, if you will, or whatever it was that would make them feel uncomfortable. Depressed, right. And there were people that came in that were for Trump, and not a lot, not very few, and they would start talking about it. And we just, I just walked away and let them talk. And then we did the business with them and they left. Right. You had them figured out by the inauguration. I uh, really, absolutely. it took Charlottesville for me to realize, hey, there's a big problem in the White House. I was not a Hillary Clinton fan, but right. Donald Trump is something different. And I wonder if you feel like he's part of the reason why his 80s isn't open now. Uh, I think a lot of it is. We did get a stimulus, but that didn't help. It didn't last. And, you know, with them trying to get new money out and the Republicans are not won't move. And uh, also the Democrats needed to step up. But I think there is a lot of that. I mean, there's so many restaurants that have closed businesses, some very high end restaurants in New York that I am familiar with that had to close. And yeah, it's a very sad time and a divisive time, but hopefully come the next couple of days that we'll, we'll see a change that will kind of heal our society because I think there's a lot of distrust and uneasy feelings about where our country is going. And I just hope that we can come together and have the hope and realize what our country can be again. Let's just talk about being a restaurateur in Denver in the pandemic era. You have had your livelihood not only affected by decisions in Washington, but also in Colorado and Denver, where Zadies has always been. Do you have any hard feelings toward Michael Hancock or Jared Polis? Personally, I think Gerald Polis has done a fabulous job. I know there's a lot of controversy with him, people saying he's shutting everything down and everything, but he's got the health in the forefront of our community and our state. And Michael Hancock, uh, I'm not as favorable toward him. I think he's done a lot of development that shouldn't have been done, and it's just kind of run wild. I think some of his policies on the COVID are okay. But I think Jared Polis was very aggressive and has the heart of our state in the best interest. So I applaud him. Well stated. On Michael Hancock, you are just above Cherry Creek, fortunately removed from that massive construction. But it affected my willingness to travel out of my way to go to Zadie's. And I bet you heard that a lot. What was it like to be surrounded by all the new developments in Cherry Creek? It seems like the infrastructure won't support it, from my point of view. What about yours? Well, there was always this big thing about people that couldn't find parking, and they would leave, and it was a very big deal. And, of course, other people would park in our parking lots. We didn't have a big parking lot, but uh, we did have some. 
And, you know, Cherry Creek, there's very little parking except on the streets now, maybe a garage or two. But it turned people off to come there. First of all, they were paying for the meters, and uh, it was just um, standoffish kind of thing. Attitude, well, if you want to come to Cherry Creek, which is kind of the frou-frou place, then this is what you deal with, uh, the parking and, and all of the inconveniences. And we had a lot of older clientele that if they had to park their car two blocks away, they had trouble walking. It just wasn't conducive them for them to come to Zadie's. Many times they would drive up and drop someone off. And I said, you know, if you want to go in, I will go park your car. And, and we did that to alleviate the problem, but it didn't alleviate the total problem. And it's only getting worse. And Right. It's, it, maybe that's why the pandemic came, because they realized there was too much traffic on the streets of Denver. We've both seen it. You a little more. I consider you kind of a collar member of the community, sort of that generation between my father and me. Is that fair, Gerard? Yes, it's kind of like that. You bet. And yeah. you knew my family and I knew yours. Consummate respect. And you brought up your relatives, the Perlmutters. What a great family. Brag on the Perlmutters a little bit. Well, my Uncle Jordan, who your dad was his lawyer and best friend, and they grew up together and played ball together. And when Jordan started the company and he had those people like your dad and Bob Klausner and uh, Lonnie Klein, these were kids that they all grew up with. But Shelly was my, your dad was my dad's lawyer and Barbara, your mom, I knew her well. And they come to Zadie's even in their later years. And sometimes they were compromised physically, but they came and their minds were great. Your dad's mind was always great. So it was a very close relationship with the Perlmutters and it was a success all the way around. And your uncle Jordan, what a legend. You know, we've seen a lot of developers come and go, but Jordy yeah. never had an ounce of controversy. He was straight as an arrow and he proved you can do it the right way, especially if you have a great lawyer. Right. Totally. And he did. He did. Your dad was the great lawyer. Well, Jordy was a visionary and he saw Denver and made it grow. They built North Glen when you thought, oh my God, who would go that far north and then South right. Glen and Southwest Plaza Mall. A lot of yeah. memories. But my dominant memory of Zadie's, I talked about Rabbi Goldberger, but it was your restaurant on Lawrence Street, right? No, it was on 14th Street between Tremont and Court Place. 14th and what? Lawrence Market? What was it? No, the original. No, Zadie's the one in Lodo. Oh, the one in Lodo was 14th and Lawrence. Okay, 14th and Lawrence. My dad yeah. had his 80th birthday party, and I put it on, and I invited right. his old team, the Hawks, and Irv Brown of Blessed Memory. Right. He emceed the event at Zadie's, and all these 70-year-olds were paying tribute to my dad at 80 because he was their coach when he was in law school, and a little while right. he was a lawyer. And it was at Zadie's, and you guys put it on perfectly. The food, always delicious, plentiful. So like so many people in Colorado and probably around the United States, we're just sad that Zadie's is gone. Give us hope for the future. One, 
the right guy is going to be elected on Tuesday, and alibi it happens Tuesday night, right? We find out it's overwhelming. Oh, we're praying hard for that. We're praying hard, as I say. We need change. We need hope. We need unity. And hopefully with the election coming out right, we'll be able to realize what our country was before Trump. We need the return of Zadis. Tell us that's a possibility. You have a wonderful son, Jason, who worked so hard. Is it a possibility, please? There's some things uh, possibly in the future. Right now, I don't know. There's just a lot that we have to take care of, closing things. And, and financially, it's, um, it's been a, a tough go. But, you know, everything moves forward and we have to move forward and think positive. And there are some people that have contacted me about some things. And, but at this point, we have to get, take care of everything first and then go from there. That wonderful Zadie's coffee cake. I know you didn't. You got that from some German bakery, right? No, no, I have. We have some friends, and it was called Grandma Friedman's Coffee Cake. And these friends, he and I shared the same birthday, and his wife would make the cake. And so I said to her, this is, oh, God, 30, 40 years ago, I said, you know, could I get that recipe? So that's the recipe. It's called Grandma Friedman's, and it's a sour cream coffee cake, and it is a hallmark of Zadie's. It's delicious. Oh, no. Is it gone? Is there anywhere we can get it anymore? Not right now, but uh, hopefully maybe down the road. Yeah, I mean, I've got the recipes, and eventually when I can get everything else settled, that uh, I'll start doing that because I used to do a lot of the baking there. All right, let's just end on optimism. How many grandkids do you have now? I have three. My oldest is 20 and then uh, going to be 18. And then our daughter uh, fostered to adopt. She's a single mom and she fostered a little one and he's four years old. He's going to be four years old, November 2nd. They live in California and actually, they were supposed to come here, but because of the COVID, they're not coming right now. And uh, But they will be here, and it's it's been a joy. It's been a joy. What is his name? His name is Theo Luis Radovsky. I like that name, Theo. And yeah. give us your prescription for how to make the world a great place for Theo in the future. Or I should say, give us the recipe, Gerard. The recipe for the future is just the right leaders, peace and love, and be tolerant of other people, and just embrace the good things in life, and be thankful and grateful for everything that we have. I think that's beautiful. And Judaism is a gift. You can open it anytime. I'm not nearly as knowledgeable as you, but I always love that concept that there's God inside of us, right? Absolutely. And if you look at human beings that way, even Trump supporters, and that's difficult, but if you say, we've all got a touch of God in us, then we will treat each other with respect and dignity and peace, and all by someday there will be another place like Zadie's and another great man like Gerard Rudovsky. I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough. Anything so. else in this special Halloween version of this podcast, late October, right before the election? Gerard, your final words. Right. 
my final words are thank you for doing this with me. I appreciate it. I'm humbled that people would think of Zadie's and feel the same thing that I wanted it to be. As I say, we've known you guys, your family, for many years and have great respect. And I feel honored that you called me and asked me to do this. The honor is all mine. Thank you, Gerard. Best to Sheila and uh, your family, okay? Thanks, Craig. Bye-bye. Bye. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LawLLC.com. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what, what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer. My father, a Denver lawyer. My grandfather, a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800, thank you. Now back to The Fred Silverman Show. Wow, what a day, what a life, what? A world. It's a world in which I've known the Mobel family for a long time, and they've known the Silvermans. It's such an honor to meet a member of that family who is a world-renowned therapist. I read her work in psychology today. She works right amongst us here in Metro Denver. Her name, Lisa Thomas, and she is the first sex counselor that I've ever had in my broadcast career. So I feel like a virgin. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Craig, for having me. I appreciate it. 
Will you be gentle with me since I've never talked about this on the air before? Absolutely. We'll do this with a lot of lube. Easy does it. Oh boy, lube already. (laughs) And the nice thing about a podcast is we could work R-rated. We have Christian Cedarberg on this show, Gerard Rudofsky, who's pissed at Trump. So am I. We may have a lot of cursing there, but the bottom line, Lisa Thomas, I'm so honored for you to carve out time for me. You are booked solid. You counsel people. Tell everybody what you do for a living. So I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed clinical social worker and a certified clinical sex therapist. So I have a private practice in the Denver Tech Center where I basically specialize in counseling couples. I do everything when it comes to relationships, including intimacy and desire discrepancies, infidelity, you name it. If couples deal with it, we talk about it in my office. Wow, what a phrase, desire discrepancies, but let's just back up a little. And I don't have any double meaning to that, which is the Mobels and the Silvermans. Just explain how far back that goes. Oh, it probably goes back 60 years, maybe, maybe maybe more than that. You tell me. Well, you have those roots and their restaurant roots. Gerard Rudofsky, we're talking about the sad demise of his 80s. You are linked to one of the most famous restaurants in Metro Denver. Give a shout out. My family has the Blue Bonnet restaurant off of Broadway and has had it for almost 60 years. Oi, they've had such great business, but what a tough time to be a restaurateur. It's a tough time on everybody. But I drive by the Blue Bonnet, pick up food frequently as I go down South Broadway. They're doing a lot of business on takeout. They have a big patio. And God, I hope the Blue Bonnet survives. These are tough times, aren't they? They are. They are, and we will survive. We're a strong family. We've weathered a lot, and we will weather this as well. Let's talk about family. You are a mama, too. Tell everybody how you balance all you do, your packed schedule and being a mother as well, especially in this pandemic era. Definitely. Well, one of the challenges, I think, in this pandemic in particular is when you have children, especially young children. So I think really the brunt of the pandemic is being felt by families that have young children and especially working mothers, because mothers a lot of times become what I call the default parent, where they kind of end up having to pick up the slack and kind of caring for the children. And so, wow, we got a a curveball thrown at us when this hit in March. So at this point, I think a lot of mothers have either working mothers. I think I saw on the Today Show, uh, there's a high percentage of working mothers that have had to leave their jobs because the children aren't in school. There's not reliable, stable childcare. And so I consider myself fortunate where I have a flexible schedule. And I also have a daughter that's a little older, who's capable of watching my son, who's a little younger. So man, we have really come together as a family to try and just get through this and support each other and help each other. But I feel like this pandemic is particularly hard when you have young children, when you have aging or elderly parents, when you're not employed. So if you're an unemployed person and if you're an essential worker, I think it's been very, very difficult. It's tough. Let's talk about sex instead. 
That's more fun. Although it ties in, people are home together a lot. And my gosh, we're starved for entertainment. How many Definitely. things can you watch on Netflix? <laughs> is, is this why you're so busy? Your website, onlinecouch.com. And I don't know, you, you really find out how much you like each other during a pandemic, right? You should do when you're alone together, right? So there's definitely been an increase in requests for marriage counseling. I think people have really taken positively to the concept of telehealth. And I've had a lot of couples that it's just easier for them to meet with me via Zoom or on an online platform. And so I think it's expanded the market for, for people to feel like marriage counseling is accessible because people are home. And so I think slowing down or not going out to work, not traveling, people's lives have kind of simplified. And I think as a result, they're reaching out for marriage counseling. Right. And you can do an online through Zoom and all those things? Yes, definitely. Like all my therapy is no touch. Everything, you know, is confidential. And it's really just talk therapy. We're kind of talking through feelings and emotions. I mean, listen, sex is very emotional. It's very connected activity. If you break down the word intimacy, it really is into me see. So it's a very transparent, very vulnerable activity. And I think now more than ever, people kind of can't hide. There's nowhere to run anymore. So I think people have been confronted with a lot of emotion with this pandemic, including how they feel about sex, how they feel about their spouse, how they feel about their family. And I'm trying to be serious and funny, and I'm awkward because I'm a virgin talking about <laughs> this. So please forgive me, but I'm thinking about a guy who I met when we covered Jean Benet, and he was a former prosecutor, so was I. And his name's Jeffrey Tubin, and he's in a lot of trouble because during a New Yorker staff meeting, they say he was masturbating, which might be, you know, he had another conversation going. I don't know, but mm -hmm. it's such strange times. Lisa, I, I'm a happily married man. It's so fortunate, but I was single for quite a period of time. What do you do if you're a bachelor or a bachelorette and you want to have a healthy sex life? You'd like to meet new people. And is sex more dangerous or is kissing more dangerous now? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, especially in the midst of a pandemic, I think it's more difficult to date. I think people are more cognizant about taking a risk in terms of kissing. Or and can I take a risk and say the most dangerous thing? Sure. The handshake. Oh, oh yeah. Remember the handshake? You can't do right. that anymore. Right. Not on a first date. I mean, how many dates do you have to go on before you feel it's safe to touch somebody's hand? It's definitely more now. It's definitely more now. I mean, I always kind of think about, you know, in general, men don't really touch anybody, right? Like now we don't even shake hands, but really men have to be very cognizant about their boundaries and touching. And so a lot of times I think men really are driven to want to have sex because sex equates touch right so, yeah this is jeff tubin's defense you should be a defense mm -hmm. attorney interest i'll do that in my spare time nobody was touching him he had to touch himself come on your honor 
anyway. Right. Well, you got you to have appropriate boundaries, even if you're on a virtual or Zoom meeting. I think people are more comfortable in their houses, and so they're probably more likely to take risks versus if they were in their office. Can I bring up Jeff Tubin's boundary just because it's interesting? And I remember yeah. this off the top of my head, that while he was a married man, and working as a lawyer, ex-prosecutor, I'm always noticing that there was a famous ABC broadcaster named Jeff Greenfield who had a daughter who was, I believe, a working lawyer. And Jeff Tubin and her had an affair, and that was made evident by the fact that she became pregnant with his child. And mm-hmm. so he probably has some boundaries issues going on. Mm-hmm. Who am I to judge? But isn't did you know all that about Jeff Tubin? I did not. I do now. It's, it sounds like a very interesting story and certainly connecting the dots. Right? And you know what else he did? He wrote a famous New Yorker article about Roger Stone and him going to a swingers place in Miami. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. look that up and it's wild. And some people are now saying that Jeff lingered at that swingers club. What happens if somebody comes to you, Lisa, and says, hey, we'd like to go to a swingers club? What do you tell them? Mm -hmm. Well, I I certainly have had couples that have come to me in my practice and wanted to either participate in going to a swingers club or opening their marriages. And so we end up, you know, just having a dialogue about it. And really, it's just kind of having an honest conversation. And in a lot of ways, it's setting boundaries for kind of the risks we're going to be taking and helping both partners feel comfortable with what those risks are and where the boundaries are. Like, for example, going to a swingers club, are we going to be having sexual intercourse with other people or are we just going to be flirting with other people? Are we going to stay together or are we going to separate? So it's all those conversations kind of being had in the office. It's really very interesting. And then do they go and report back? Yeah, a lot of them go. The ones that are interested in, you know, pursuing kind of alternative lifestyle or experimenting. Yeah, a lot of them go, you know, a percentage of them end up participating in in the community like long term. A lot of them do not. It's kind of a something they do for a period of time and then they either break up or they decide that they don't want to do it anymore and they close the relationship up again. Wow. The stories you must hear and you get paid for it too. But it's sort of like the practice of law. Mm-hmm. I think I've heard just about everything. Do you think you've heard it all or do you think oh, every week are you surprised by something else? I'm still surprised by something else. I've been doing this 20 years and it's still it's so interesting like how people are navigating all the challenges in life, especially in this pandemic, it's been fascinating just to kind of see how people are dealing with this. I mean, for example, I've seen an increase in sexual intercourse. There's been a report that masturbation is up by at least 15%, that pornography use has increased at least 25%, but that erectile dysfunction is also up. I would think that that would be down if you get my drip. No, I'm I just think, kidding. I know. I think it's up because there's just more anxiety. God, it's it's not something the most guys want to talk about. It's like golf. You don't want to say the S H word, which ends right. with an A and K, but 
Mm-hmm. Thankfully, there's an app for that. Doesn't medication make it just wonderful for aging fellows like, I don't know, my friends? Like Bob Dole. It, exactly. Like in the 90s with kind of the conception of Viagra, you know, men were able to have sex for longer in their lifespans. And so now there's kind of this expectation that men can have sex normally into their 70s or 80s, which in some cases is true. But a lot of how I counsel couples is sex over the lifespan. The end of your career kind of looks like the beginning of your career. And what I mean by that is at the beginning of your sexual career, it's kind of not about intercourse. It's kind of more about kissing and foreplay. Remember the bases, first base, second base, third base? Yeah. And then so that's kind of heavy high school, college. And then you move into intercourse kind of, you know, in reproductive years and midlife. But then, you know, when you're in your 50s or 60s, even earlier sometimes, the climate starts to change. Women kind of go through menopause and men start having more difficulty with erections. And so really couples that make their sexual relationship focused around kissing and touching and not so intercourse or performance focused have better sexual relationships over their lifespan. So I have couples that come to see me in their 40s or in their 50s when sexual dysfunction or performance starts becoming a problem and they fight about it. And sometimes sex becomes a tension producer instead of a tension reducer. And so I sort of aim to help couples, you know, ease through that part of their lifespan together. Well, I did a radio show back when Brokeback Mountain won the Academy Award. And I thought that Mm -hmm. was a powerful movie because it demonstrated that these men who married women, even though they were predominantly gay, went on to ruin a whole bunch of lives because they cannot live the life that I think they should live. Right. They, they weren't honest and it came, it's, it's sort of came back around. And all of that must fall on your doorstep. I bet there are couples who come to you where the woman says, geez, I think he's gay or vice versa. Does that happen? What do you do? It has happened. And it's happened with women, too, where women are in a marriage and then they later come out as being gay. And sometimes we have to figure out what to do because there's there's families, there's children involved, there's parents that are in the equation. So a lot of times it starts with the it starts with the couple and then breaking them up to have individual therapy and kind of making sure, you know, what direction do they want to see things go and then supporting them with with kind of all the rings on the tree. So, you know, individually, what do, what do they want to do? As a couple, what do they want to do? How does this affect their family? It's like it just kind of goes out like rings on a tree. And, you know, in a lot of cases, I'm working with the individuals. I'm working with the couples. Sometimes their kids come in and we're working as a family. And so that's one of the cool parts about my job is the flexibility to be able to see a whole family system and to help with sort of the continuity of care that I'm kind of their person that helps to navigate them through sometimes a really hard transition. Do you ever tell them my best advice is for you to suppress that? It's like if I have somebody who's constantly in trouble with their license because they keep speeding, I suggest you should probably stop speeding. 
Yeah, that's good advice. I mean, sometimes it kind of depends on how it's affecting them and the length of time that it's gone on for. It's like, this is this a new problem or has this been an ongoing problem? Okay, can I tell you an old problem for me? Unfortunately, I don't have that issue. I feel sorry for the people who do, but here's something that may have scarred me. Can I bear my soul to you, Lisa Thomas? Absolutely, do it. First of all, I went to Ellis Elementary, and then in the fourth grade, we moved, and I went to Fallis Elementary, and I was so naive, I had no idea the joke that Fallis, F-A-L-L-I-S, but it sounds mm-hmm. like Fallis, which mm-hmm. I guess is a Greek word that I learned when I got a little smarter. Anyway, I'm ill-equipped to know anything about anything when I'm in a sex ed class there, and I had a legitimate question, which was, one where they asked you to raise your hand. I raised my hand and I realized, ooh, I don't know how to phrase this. I said, can you explain to me what causes a male or a man or a boy to have, and I was searching for the word, mm-hmm. I, so I said boner. Mm-hmm. And the room erupted in laughter. And I felt humiliated, and I think it's hurt me through the years. Can I lay down and talk about this? Yes. Are you laying down? Lay down now. No, no, but I'm glad I got it off my chest. But I remember I was searching for the word because I didn't know the word erection. I think I was maybe struggling between hard-on and boner. Mm -hmm. And I chose boner, which... Maybe it was my timing. However I said it, it was laughter, but I didn't like it. A lot of times uh-huh. I've tried to be funny, but that that scarred me. Anyway, so yeah. well, but isn't, sexual, that, isn't that a good question? It is a good question. And I always say, you know, sexual humiliation is kind of the highest form of, you know, vulnerability, like feeling really, you know. I, I am going to lay down. Keep going. Yeah. So, and, you know, as kids, sometimes we say things because we don't understand. I mean, you know, where do you get a sexual education from? It's different now than it was when I grew up or when you grew up. Like now the internet kind of is responsible for uh, giving our kids a, a lot more sexual education than we have. In my generation, you know, we had HBO Betamax, a couple of seedy stores where you could like go and get magazines or sex toys, but it was all very seedy. It was considered to be like dirty. And now, you know, they sell sex toys on Amazon. It's it's very vanilla and very popular. And interestingly enough, during the pandemic, the sale of sex toys is up 200%. It's like skyrocketing. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think people are bored, they're lonely, and they're looking to kill time. And they might also be kind of looking for novelty because they're with their partner all the time. And so they're like, geez, let's do something different. Let's try something new. So it's kind of a good opportunity to take a risk. That brings us to robots. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend it or not? Oof, You know, they're not for me. But I've certainly, robots and dolls, I've had people come to me and want to want to talk about using sex dolls in the place of having sex with, with a person. And I mean, for me, it's, you know, it's one of those ethical moments that, you know, you have to not have a creeped out look on your face. 
But in truth, you know, it's trying to have empathy for people that have all kinds of different tastes, right? So, you know, as long as there's nothing illegal going on, I try to support what people's sexual preferences and interests are and try to help them find avenues to to work them out. So robots, I think, it, it seems like the next step because the internet has kind of depersonalized a lot of things, including sex. I mean, sex used to be something you had to do with a person and, you know, now it's become something you do online with yourself. And so doing it with a robot sort of seems like the next step to me. What about those sites where people perform for each other? Or even if you're dating now, you work with a lot of single people and they say, hey, this guy wants me to take off my clothes and show him this and that. Is that okay? Should I do that? And men are visually stimulated. Are women? I think so. I think sometimes women need help kind of turning off their on switch where they're parenting and working and dealing and, you know, worrying, and they kind of need something, some adult content or something that is arousing to them to remind them that they might be interested in being sexual or having sex. I think that that's part of why women have lower desire than men. Also, we don't have any testosterone. So testosterone is kind of the desire hormone. You got me thinking about how I learned the facts of life. And here's another thing I should probably be paying you for because I think it might have traumatized me or it might have been great. I learned the facts of life in a sauna in San Francisco. And that was on a family vacation when I was in fourth grade. And Mm -hmm. my dad and my brother took me into the men's sauna at the Ramada Inn in Fisherman's Wharf. And my mom and my sister went into the woman's sauna. Uh And my dad said, I'm going to tell you the facts of life. And he told me stuff that I I hadn't even really thought about. I thought the pill was something you took to get pregnant. It just wasn't that smart of a kid. And he would tell me this amazing stuff. And my brother, Bill, who was three years older, was there. And I would look at him. I'd say, really? And he'd say, yep. (laughs) And then my dad, he said, it was really nice. He said, and women are not like men and men can get aroused easily, but women, it takes more time and you always be a gentleman and you never do this. You never do that. And he was very nice. And he said, and if you think you're going to explain any of this to your sister, you're not because your mother's telling her all this in the woman's sauna right now. She's 13 months younger. So I think that was a great way to learn about the facts of life, don't you? Absolutely. I think parents that take the time to teach their kids, it's very meaningful. And look how you remember that. I mean, it was like it was a a cornerstone in your childhood, I think. Yes. But was it right for them to tell me before I was even all that curious about it? I think so, because they probably wanted to be they wanted to get to you first. They probably were thinking at some point somebody was going to tell you something and it may be misinformation. So I always tell my couples, talk to your kids about sex because you want to be the one to teach them, not somebody else. So now, thank God my kids are grown with the internet and the way porn is ubiquitous. What do you have to tell them when they're in the cradle uh, while you're rocking them? Let me start explaining this to you. 
middle school is, you know, kind of when it becomes appropriate. And I love how your father kind of was talking to you about the concept of consent, which I think is important for all, all teenagers to kind of understand this concept of consent. Because as we get into, you know, texting and sexting and sending pictures and please send nudes and cam girls and pornography, it's good for teenagers to understand the concept of consent and understand the boundaries with, you know, sending pictures and receiving pictures. If you're a child and you take a picture of yourself naked and send it to another child, it's considered child pornography. It's it's trading uh, pornographic images. And so explaining that to teenagers especially, I think is really important that they got and have to understand the law. See, this is like where you come in, Craig. Right. No, there. I, I've said for a while, if, if it wasn't for alcohol and sex, I don't know what I would have done with my career. But speaking of alcohol and sex, do they go together or not really? I think so. I think, you know, it's a little bit of liquid courage, especially at the beginning. But I think, you know, as you get into a relationship, sometimes alcohol can start becoming more problematic when it comes to having intimate functional sex. So sometimes I say one drink is a good lubricant. Two drinks is kind of where you start losing it. I think zero drinks is the right answer because it just dulls your senses. Why would you want to dull your senses during sex? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, I think in the pandemic, people have really started now looking at cutting back. I think for the first months, people were over drinking and overeating. We were overindulging and trying to deal with our new normal. So now I see people kind of, you know, saying I went from drinking three nights a week to five nights a week to every night. Now I got to knock it off and cut it back. Let's be honest. Sometimes cases are easy. And it's almost like stealing. You've got some guys coming in saying, I'm having trouble performing in bed. Mm-hmm. And then you do a little talking and an hour later you say, stop drinking a six pack every night and try and see what happens. And then you get paid for Be that. Be nice to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's easy money, right? It is easy. That's, that's, a little, that's easier. That's easier. Yeah, some cases are easy and some cases are madness, right? Right, but there's nothing that easy about this pandemic. We went from the best of times to the most stressful of times. And here you are, a mental health therapist. What are you seeing, Lisa? Well, I think I'm seeing a lot more anxiety, a lot more depression, a lot more uncertainty. I'm seeing people hesitant to get divorced or break up. I'm seeing couples get divorced and break up and getting divorced over Zoom. I mean, this is like a new concept that you don't have to go to court and face your ex anymore. You can just do it from your living room over Zoom. I've seen people be really stressed out about their kids and their aging parents. And I've seen a lot more people reaching out for help. Normally this time of year, things sort of start quieting down as we're going into the holidays and people are hunkering down and taking vacations and planning for the holidays. And now this year, you know, people really, they're not, there's no breaks. People, they haven't been vacationing. They've been working constantly. They're always at home. There's just kind of no break. So I've seen people be more overwhelmed, but I've also seen couples, especially 
some of them have really come together in amazing and beautiful ways where they've supported each other and made a schedule and tried to figure out how to split up the parenting and the household chores. I mean, some of my couples have really been good models and knocked it out of the park. It's such a demanding time and we have politics on top of it. That's got to be the cause of stress. This is the most stressful election of my lifetime. Definitely. And I've had couples that are fighting and arguing about the election and not being able to talk politics and being in disagreement with somebody who you can't get away from. Right. It's like you can't get you can't leave your house. Oh, my God. That's a nightmare. Honestly, (laughs) I'm so blessed in my conversation with you makes me realize what a beautiful marriage I have to my beautiful Trish, because we're just copacetic and we've taken our political twists and turns, but always together. We kind of move as a unit. And even my son, Sam, who, you know, because he goes to school with your daughter, Sam, right. And Mm -hmm. he kind of leads us. So we all kind of move as a unit politically. We're not tied to any political party. It's an interesting dynamic. I feel so sorry for couples who are arguing about this because the intensity of this political debate is just off the charts. It is. It's overwhelming. I think a lot of people have anxiety. A lot I've had an increase in phone calls of people that just, you know, say, I need to come talk to you. I'm so stressed out about this election and worry. Tell people how they can reach you. It's onlinecouch.com. You want to give out a phone number? Tell them how to reach Lisa Thomas. So my website, onlinecouch.com is a great way to reach me. That's a way you can read about me. You can send me an email. My contact information's on the website, or you can call me. My phone number is 720-489-5150. So if you need help with your relationship or with a loved one, please reach out. I'd love to support you and try to help. I'm thinking about the big parties we've held for Silverman events at the Blue Bonnet. You guys cater so wonderfully, but you have such amazing facilities, great porch as well. I bet you deal with couples where one says, hey, let's go out. It's not that dangerous. This is open. That's open. Let's go to the Blue Bonnet. And somebody else says, are you crazy? Have you watched the local news? Are people fighting about this? Absolutely. I've sat in many a meeting since March where couples are in disagreement about opening up or in disagreement about sending their kids to school. That was a big one kind of at the end of the summer. So, yeah, I mean, I think times like this can bring out the best in people or the worst in people. You do figure out who you're with, like what kind of people you're with when you're in a stressful situation like this. So, my advice is pick a good team, right? Be on a good team if, if something like this goes down. Right. Who thought going to a restaurant was like having sex? It all comes down to risk tolerance, right? And people right. are different and everybody has to decide on their own and get help from Lisa Thomas. Thank you for giving me so much time. And in listening to my childhood experiences, do you think those help me or hurt me? I think it helped you. It probably made you feel more secure with your family and trust with your father that he kind of told you about the birds and the bees. I think what happened to you at Phallus was uh, something that happens to all of us. There's that moment that we realize that we don't know 
what's going on and everybody else knows. So it's that moment that you kind of feel humiliated. But I think, Craig, you've used it in your life and you've moved forward and you're the best. So I think hopefully that experience was motivating to you and it didn't define your life. You've moved on and done very, very well. That is so sweet of you. Read her work in psychology today, onlinecouch.com. Lisa Thomas, what a joy. Happy Halloween. Thank you. Happy Halloween. And everyone, protect your relationships, make good decisions on a day-to-day and a moment-to-moment basis. Love each other. Peace, peace, peace. Thank you, Lisa. You're the best. Thank you, as are you. Bye-bye. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, a special Halloween edition with Christian Cedarberg, a Denver boy who's made it big. I'm proud to have him return to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Christian, welcome back. Yeah, thanks so much. It's great to be back and appreciate you having me on. Tell everybody where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Southeast Denver, right around I-25 in Hamden in the Southmore Park neighborhood. And then, uh, you know, went to went to grade school at uh, St. Vincent de Paul and then high school, Regis Jesuit High School. And then where'd you get your uh, college and law education? Sure, yeah. No, I switched the mountains for the beach and went to University of San Diego, spent four years there, and then back to Colorado, worked a couple of years, and then went to law school up at CU Boulder. Greatest law school in all of America, or at least in Colorado, that's for Great. sure. But, <laughs> Christian, you've made it big, and I admire you. You formed, what was it, a two-man firm with Brian Vicente? There was actually three of us. It was Brian Vicente and Josh Kappel, really the law firm should be. Vicente Kappel, Cedarberg, but Josh had just graduated from law school. He's now a full partner. But, yeah, just three of us. Josh had been, he was about... 10 days out of graduation in May of 2010 when when we started the firm. 
And did you start in the Capitol Hill area of Denver? Yeah, we were right at 11th and Grant on the corner in the Rocky Mountain. It's the Rocky Mountain Jewish News. I can't remember, but it's the rabbi was our landlord in a just a, you know, three-story kind of, you know, 60s or 70s building right at 1144 Grant there. Right where the Intermountain Jewish News is, the Goldberg family. Intermountain Jewish News. Thank you, Intermountain Rabbi Goldberg. Well, that's all right. So I bet the rent was pretty low and you kept expenses down, but eventually you managed to move into a Cap Hill mansion. Tell everybody about it. It's the subject of the cover story in Westward this week. Yeah, I'm so proud of uh, Lindsay Bartlett's work on that. She did an awesome job. So 1177 Grant was the office and, you know, we kind of worked there and grown and we'd taken over adjacent office space and you know, we were walking across, we kind of had a whole like little floor where we had three separate offices and I was walking up to, I can't remember where, you know, maybe City Grill or something there on Colfax and Grant and was walking back in the Creswell Mansion, which is on the east side of Grant, right, you know, two blocks from the Capitol there, east side of Grant, 1244 is right next to a giant new uh, apartment building, but it was a parking lot before and there's the first Quiznos right across the street, all that stuff and just this cool old mansion, you know, with gargoyles and everything. And I was walking back. I'd always loved the the old mansions and was walking back from lunch and they were putting out a for lease sign. I immediately took the number down and was like, this is the spot. I've loved this place. And, you know, there's a kind of a mansion's row there. Some have been knocked down, but there's still some that, some that are around and this is a really cool one. So, so yeah, I walked back in the office. This was uh, right after the Amendment 64 election. So that was 2012. And this was early 2013. I think it was, you know, either December 2012 or January 2013, where I saw this sign go up. So called him, did a tour, saw the vision, you know, and then, uh, yeah, we jumped in pretty quickly thereafter. Nice move. Did you always lease or did you ever own it? Yeah. So we we leased it with an option to buy it because we wanted to, uh, you know, and it was also just a part of the the offer the landlord had had with the previous tenants. And so we leased it for a couple of years and then we we did execute on the option to purchase it. Interestingly, kind of after we were had already decided we needed to to upsize our our firm and get into a little bit more traditional space because we were going up and down stairs. We had people sharing rooms there. You know, the infrastructure in some of those old houses are tough as people know. And we actually had taken over the little the, the carriage house in back and the carriage house was being occupied by about 50, seemed like 15 people when we moved in. I don't think it was supposed to be that way, but we eventually took that over. And then, you know, as we were getting ready to move, we actually moved into the marijuana enforcement division, the Colorado Department of Revenue. The regulatory agency had this big office that they had renovated and they were, I saw online that they were moving around and I saw it was in this old building, right? at basically fifth and Sherman, you know, little down right. by the nine news building and all that stuff. And so we were moving, but I said, this place is amazing. And we'd already, you know, we had some people that would rent some small offices and we actually had the vision of converting it to, uh, at least potentially to what it now is, which is a cannabis dispensary, the green dragon in the back in the carriage house. Cause it was sufficient setbacks. Although the front house, is about seven feet short of being sufficiently set back for a dispensary. But because they're two separate properties, you know, we did that. We're lawyers. So we subdivided the property, which you can do in Denver so that the measurements would meet it. And, you know, we figured it'd be a good business opportunity. We could have it and then, you know, find a good operator or a good, someone good that could get in there and, you know, always had the vision of the mansion. We call it the marijuana mansion. And, you know, it's in the article, but, you know, the, the Creswell mansion is what it is. 
of just being a really cool event space or, you know, social gathering place, coffee shop, all sorts of different options that we were putting on the table. And yeah, so we, we, we got the option, purchased it. And then for a couple of years, had some people in there and we did a little bit of work there, but then also, you know, recording different dispensaries, operators and others that we thought would be a good fit. And fortunately we found one in the green dragon and they had the vision to, for the, for anyone who hasn't read the Westward article, it's probably, I think they put the new one out yesterday, but it's a really cool cover story and has a bunch of pictures. They totally renovate, you know, they dressed it up and made all the rooms look really nice. And, and it's kind of a cool event space with different themes and different rooms. And, you know, they did the vision, vision way better than, than any of us thought it could be done. So it's really cool now. Well, here's the thing. I went by it the other day because it's not far from my workplace. It's on Millionaire's Hill. It's a cool old Capel mansion. And I think that the rooms are a little taller. Yeah. I didn't get inside. It was closed, but I saw this setup and I saw the Truman like balcony, or you could call it a Mussolini balcony. Did you ever get up there and pontificate? Yeah. And since you're not bragging on yourself, let me brag on <laughs> you. That little three man firm, Vicente Cedarberg with Christian Cedarberg here on the line became a world-renowned marijuana law firm. They know all things about cannabis because you are the guys responsible for bringing legalized marijuana to Colorado. Now, isn't that the fact, Mr. Cedarberg? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's, it's really cool. I always talk about how, you know, Josh and Brian, Brian Vicente had been doing this from a policy perspective since 2005. We formed the firm in 2010. And you know, it's pretty cool to be business partners with someone you consider, you know, a heroic figure. And Brian is someone who really drove this policy. I just conveniently came in at the uh, the right time when the state law changed and they needed, a, I think Brian said I was the only cool corporate lawyer that he knew because he was definitely on the more, you know, working on advocacy. You know, he represented the Recreate 68 group that was in town for the convention, which was, you know, everyone was worried it was going to burn down Denver, like Chicago in 68. But Really, it was just an advocacy group, but Brian was a super advocate for all sorts of good, interesting causes. And he said, I was, you know, we had had a ski house together and he said, you know, I'm the only cool corporate lawyer. You know, it turns out I was the only corporate lawyer he really knew. But you, but you happen to be cool. And now <laughs> yeah. Vicente Cedarberg is taking over the world. How big are you guys? Yeah. How many cities are you in? We have about 90 total staff, 30 some lawyers. Denver's our big office with around 45 and then Boston and Los Angeles, we have, you know, around 15 to 20 in both of those offices. We have another five in New York and then sort of solo practices, solo offices in the D.C. area and down in Florida. So but we cover all 50 states or whatever, however many states there, you know, the, the 30 plus states that have regulated cannabis programs. And then we've worked with some other countries like Uruguay, Guam. We have we helped write Guam's. What about outer space? Do you have any yeah, affiliates? There? That's next. You know, they found water on the moon, so we just have to figure out how to, you know, put some plants in there. Right now you put that in a bong and you got a perfect product. <laughs> really, Christian, yeah, I, yeah. I was talking about Denver Boy made good, but congratulations on all your success. Yep. And Everybody's following the presidential race. We will get around to that. But marijuana is on the ballot again, not in Colorado, yeah. but tell us where it's on the ballot. Sure. Yeah, there's some really interesting. There's, you know, there's some obvious places or some places that have been talked about quite a bit. New Jersey has been struggling with whether or not their state legislature would move forward. What they did was they put a ballot initiative just asking the voters a pretty simple question. Should cannabis be made legal for adults 21 and over? 
then they'll do the statutory work if it passes. So that's a big one everyone's watching. A little bit quieter, but I find to be more interesting from a policy perspective, South Dakota and Mississippi. South Dakota has a medical and an adult use ballot initiative on. Mississippi has a medical marijuana initiative. I mean, let me stop you, Christian. Mississippi. I know. I know. It's funny, right? I said when people ask me what are the last states that are going to do medical or anything, and, you know, I'm not doing really well here because I said Utah and Mississippi and Alabama. Well, Utah has a robust medical program now. Mississippi, it looks like either way they had a state program that's more conservative, but looking good for passage this time for a more robust medical program. Alabama's still not doing anything, but, you know, who knows? We've got, you know, a lot of momentum. But a really interesting one is South Dakota. So South Dakota, and then also I should say Montana's on the ballot for adult use. They have a medical program. That's going to be really close so that, you know, these are all really close races, but all of them have a really good chance of winning. New Jersey's not very close, but, you know, the details of that are going to be the, the more interesting part when the legislature starts to work on it. But South Dakota, you know, we have Senator John Thune, Republican at, at the highest levels of leadership in the United States Senate. And a lot of people thought, yeah, medical polls pretty well there probably a longer shot for adult use, but, you know, I'm going to predict now that South Dakota passes both a medical and an adult use law. Well, is John Thune for it or against it? You know, I don't know exactly if he's been on the record that much about it. I haven't heard anything publicly taking a position on this particular. What about Governor Christy Noem? Is she for it or against it? I think, yeah, I think there's been, you know, some, some back and forth, but. uh, Is she pulling a Hickenlooper? Is she pulling a Hickenlooper kind uh, of trying to have it both ways? It's not been anywhere near, you know, Governor Hickenlooper's come up was Mayor Hancock, but they were actively participating at the time back in 2011-12 in, in the no campaign. And we haven't seen the, the same sort of, you know, uh, outpouring of public support from elected officials in these states. And, and in fact, the Mississippi initiative is being run by a very prominent Republican lawmaker, state lawmaker, you know, so we actually, you know, this is this is really not a bipartisan issue. You know, the you may not say it's not a partisan issue that you have some Republicans oh, supporting you, right? Yeah, not. I mean, Cory Gardner and Elizabeth Warren were the two sponsors, the co-sponsors of the the bill in the last year, the States Act, which would have passed a right, which if passed would have made all of our states legal, and it was actually Senator Gardner who held up all of President Trump's. U.S. attorney appointments until we got clarity as an industry that they would follow the at least the spirit of what the Obama administration had done in terms of non-enforcement. And, you know, that, that was leadership by Senator Gardner. And, you know, it's interesting because when you when you think about polling in a state like South Dakota, right, where I think medical marijuana polls that it's in the 70s or 80s in terms of support, I don't think you'd get 70 to 80 percent support of the sun rises in the east and sets in the west at this in this political environment that we're in. Obviously, I'm being a little hyperbolic, right. but the you now these these are not. It's it seems like an issue that that is really controversial or or whatever. But it, it's actually if you look at the polling versus other issues, guns, abortion, there's no, not anywhere near the polarization. Right. I mean, it's on its way. Colorado was a trailblazer, but it's on its way thanks to you guys, and that's why your law firm is so successful. Thank you. I think that when it's on the ballot in Arizona, that helps Joe Biden, don't you? It brings out people on the left who are motivated to vote most likely Biden's direction. Although Donald Trump, for all his faults, his Donald Trump 
done anything to cripple marijuana sales in America? No, he's, he's really left it to the states. You know, I think the Trump administration and particularly after Senator Gardner, you know, back in the early days when Jeff Sessions was still the attorney general, you know, he, he kind of said, look, this is something that the states will have to decide. And if you guys can muster the support to get legislation passed through the House and Senate, you know, he at least expressed openness to, to signing that bill. Obviously, you never know what's going to happen in the interim, but those were you know, those, at least at the time, were the commitments that were made. And in terms of enforcement actions, I mean, the federal government still enforces when shenanigans are going on or people aren't following, you know, the, the state laws or there's interstate trafficking. But in general, we, you know, there was, but there was many more raids under President Obama, but that was because that was before Colorado in 2010 really moved forward with its regulatory system. But if you remember back in 2013 or so, there was about 50 stores that were within a thousand feet of schools. And, and the Obama administration, the Justice Department, sent letters saying, you know, shut these stores down. They're too close to schools. You're violating federal law. If you don't do so in 30 days, we'll prosecute you. So, you know, those were – it was a kind way of but – but it definitely shut people down. Right. There's been nothing like that under the, under the Trump administration. The bigger problem politically is the Senate being controlled by Republicans. You know, we passed a banking bill bipartisan through the House of Representatives that said – you know, banks can operate in the cannabis space. And it gave clarity. They, the American Bankers Association worked on it in, in conjunction with industry people and advocates. And we got that passed with a big vote in the House, went over to the Senate and died in the Senate, or at least is currently not moving. Senator Crapo from Idaho, who's a conservative Republican. Idaho is the only state out of 50 that has nothing on, you know, there's no decriminalization. There's no lower, you know, penalties. There's no medical program, no CBD program, nothing. Idaho's the place. And Senator Crapo is a Republican committee chair of the relevant committee, means that that bill never moved anywhere in the Senate. And so the bigger problem is not that Republicans don't support us. It's that the Republican Party as a whole, if they're in control of a branch or a uh, one of the houses of Congress, in this case, the Senate, we can't get any movement on legislation that's responsible, pu- public safety oriented, you know, we'll see. We're trying to push it through to be a part of it's currently included in the COVID legislation that the House passed. That'll be negotiated. But, you know, without a change in the Republican, either their mindset fundamentally in terms of their support or not support for cannabis, individual supporting in the party is not going to get us to where we need to be because they control those committees. So if the Democrats take over the Senate, that is a, is a game changer almost as much as if the presidency changes. But look, Vice President Biden passed was We've heard about a lot during the debates and other things, the, the omnibus crime bill that was passed in the 90s, which created a lot of the sentencing disparities and other things. That is, you know, for people who care about drug policy, that was a terrible thing. And it's resulted in criminalization of communities as, a, you know, and people of color have been, tar- you know, have been targeted might be the wrong word, but end up being more targeted, more police interactions. And so that was, you know, Joe Biden in, in some ways, you know, was when we talked to people, they'd be like, it's hard to give to think about him supporting this better than even who we currently have because, you know, he's the he's one of the last true drug warriors. Now, to, to be fair, he's also, you know, definitely evolving on this issue. You know, and he has, everyone has their own personal circumstances about how their life, their family, their friends have interacted with drugs and alcohol. And so, you know, you got to be respectful about that. But uh, Kamala Harris is, uh, you know, she sponsored the MORE Act, which is an even more forward-looking and progressive piece of legislation that wouldn't just – do what States Act did, which was the Cory Gardner, Elizabeth Warren thing, which just said, leave states alone. This was actually 
deschedule federally the marijuana from Schedule 1, which would create a lot of positive outcomes, take that enforcement thing off of individuals, you know, that are in possession of marijuana. And then it would also, you know, do a bunch of things for restorative justice and encouraging communities who were disproportionately impacted through grants and loans and other things in the SBA. Like, you know, so there, that was Kamala Harris's, she was one of the, you know, she's the, the Senate sponsor for that. So we do have a lot of people around. You keep saying we, and I think I know who you are talking about, but I want the audience to know as well, by having the foremost law firm on marijuana issues in America, probably the world, you've become a leader for some trade groups. Tell everybody who you are talking about when you keep saying we. Sure. So, you know, we, we, uh, in back in 2011 or so, the National Cannabis Industry Association, which has several thousand members at this point, it's a, you know, 501c6. It's a federal, it's a trade group that advocates for federal policy reform. You know, that's something we founded back in 2011. I'm now the chairman of the board of a separate organization called the Cannabis Trade Federation, which is made up of member companies of our board of directors. There's 14 of us and they represent its members that member companies that are represented by their government affairs people. But these are companies called Curely Livewell and Native Roots in Colorado, which a lot of people know, and Lightshade, which you guys will, you know, people will see that drive around Colorado, but then nationally, Curaleaf and Columbia Care and Cresco. And these are companies that are traded on the Canadian Securities Exchange and have valuations in the billions. So these are thousand, you know, thousand plus people working for them, tens of million, you know, 50, 70 million dollars of revenue a quarter. So hundreds of millions of dollars in revenues. So those companies got together and were advocating for federal policy reform. We work with Brownstein, Hyatt, Barber, Shrek, you know, they're very well known, uh, Denver and national law firm and in their deep with their DC office and some of their folks here, Melissa Kuypers and others. And, and we were lobbying federally to get federal law change. So, but this is also in coordination with the, the advocacy, advocacy groups that have been a part of this movement for years, the drug policy Alliance, the marijuana policy right. project. So it's got to give you great credibility to be from Colorado and part of the creation of amendment 64. That's really something. Yeah, and it's funny because people that actually come here, you know, so Congressman Doug Collins, who's running for the United States Senate, conservative person from Georgia, you know, they come here and they see what's going on and they look around and they're like, wow, I was told that Colorado's falling apart and there's people smoking weed everywhere and, you know, it smells like weed everywhere you go. And and then I come here and I see that everything actually seems to be going really well and this is a really cool place. And, you know, the credibility with Colorado when people actually know it is huge, but then also, you know, unfortunately some people dishonestly, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, it's a fact, but I'll call it my opinion for, for this purpose. You know, they frame Colorado as this all hell's breaking loose and, you know, the sky did fall. You just, you know, they're lying to you. And so that, that carries with it to a certain extent, some baggage because, but it's our job to prove it otherwise, but you know, they, they like to hold out Colorado as this place where all these things are going wrong and, Obviously, those of us that live here, some people still might feel that way. Certainly in the article, Phil Goodstein didn't seem to be a big supporter, right. the, the the Denver historian. But, you know, the... Back to the Westport article, and <laughs> you, you own 1244 Grant Street. What an amazing yeah. place it is. It's now the Marijuana Mansion. Read all about it. The author, Lindsay Bartlett. But you guys, what are you in a big office tower now, or where's your new HQ? Yeah, it's, it's 455 Sherman. So if you're driving down... 
or, you know, up Broadway. It's right next to the Nine News building and the Channel 31 building, right where Six meets Spear. Sure. And it's kind of a red brick building that stair steps. Dill Dill Car, Stonebreaker, which is, you know, a big alcohol right. firm. They they share the floor with us. So it's kind of cool. We have like the cannabis regulatory people, Everybody the alcohol regulatory the people. Right? What about gambling? <laughs> right. Do you have gamblers there too? Yeah, you know. Uh, it's an interesting one it has there's it's funny you can replace on this sports gaming or you know online gaming mm-hmm. and sports book betting there's these articles that you read them it's almost like you could find and replace the word cannabis into the arguments on both sides and it you know it's, it's funny but we don't currently do any gaming stuff although what well, do you partake i'm on FanDuel, DraftKings, bet mgm william hill what other one? Oh, box bet <laughs> that's one of my favorites what about you you know, I've done a little bit here and there, but I haven't gotten really into, you know, I'm pouring all my, my money into political races and I don't have a great track record in sports betting. Let me put it that way. Not that I've done it a bunch, but well, you you've know. got a lot to lose being the scion of a huge law firm. Now, just take it easy. You don't have to bet the farm on every game and the Broncos aren't that good this year, but Let's talk about who is good and what you are wagering on is this election. Do you agree this is the election of our lifetime? Absolutely. And so you, you hear everyone says that, but I feel like most people are actually saying, this is it really it. But then everyone says that too, but I, this, this is the most important election of our lifetime. And do you agree that lawyers have a special responsibility to think about what's going on and react accordingly? Absolutely. I mean, especially... You know, we gave the day off at our firm to all of our folks and attorneys included, but non-attorneys alike are out there. You know, some of them have decided to go out there. We're not mandating it, but, you know, assist with poll watching or, you know, any any sort of issues that, that pop up. We're not election attorneys, but we've offered to help in any way we can. And I just think lawyers generally, the rule of law, you know, I don't want to make this too political, but regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, like, it seems like a time where, the rule of law is an issue. If you're on one side of the aisle, you might say it's not being enforced enough. If you're on the other side, you're saying it's being selectively enforced and everything in between. And lawyers right now, especially with what looks like a bunch of litigation that might be coming because of this election and it directly impacting impacting the, you know, fundamental, you know, tenet of our democracy, which is people participating in it. Right. Only one side is really trying to stop the votes from being counted. And I do this podcast to express my disgust and revulsion at Donald Trump. And I want him repudiated through the ballot box this year. I I don't know if you feel that way or. I don't understand how we can be in a situation where it it is good politics, even if it's good politics that like uh, that you should be pushing for limitations on the number of people that can vote because I know you can couch it as you're, you just want to make sure it's secure, but if you actually look at the tactics being taken and the way they're doing it and, and the way it's been done thus far, just the words out of the president's mouth, it really does seem like discouraging people to vote. It, like the less people that vote, the better off they think they're. I think they're, first of all, I think they're wrong about that. But certainly when you say stuff and he's on the record, I, you probably know this exact quote, but it's he, talking about turnout. And, and he said, the president said, if that many people turn out, every, you know, if, we, if they can get their turnout numbers up, we lose everywhere, you know, and, and that statement to me was like, oh, man. He said it to his good buddies on Fox and Friends. Hey, if everybody yeah. votes, the Republicans will never win. And right now, that's my yeah. attitude. And Cory Gardner's been good to you and your trade association. 
And he realizes that marijuana opposing it is a loser in Colorado and probably around America as the decades move on. That's being proved in states like South Dakota and Arizona. But even though Cory Gardner has been good to you, he's running against John Hickenlooper. I was friends with Cory Gardner, but his alliance with Donald Trump makes him unelectable for me. I vote for people with good judgment. If somebody has bad judgment to link up with Donald Trump, then I want to vote for the other person. Yeah. And look, you saw, you know, during the impeachment process, he came out early as a, you know, uh, to not let there be additional witnesses or additional, you know, additional evidence be brought in. Can I say this, Christian? Great CU law students think alike, which is why Cory Gardner should be smarter than this. He was booked to do my radio show in October of 2019. But then it all came out about uh, the perfect phone call that uh, in which Trump put the arm on Zelensky of Ukraine. And Cory Gardner was asked, well, do you think that's appropriate? He said, I will have a fair hearing in the Senate. Well, we will explore all of this, not this partisan thing by Pelosi. Well, we're still waiting. And when it came time for Gardner to hear the evidence or hear John Bolton, he said, No. Plus, as you were about to say, he'd already made up his mind. That gets me worked up and really. Me too. I I mean, the Ukrainian shakedown was unconscionable. And to acquit him last November and uh, that whole process that was consuming us a year ago, they had him dead to rights. They had a good case, didn't they, Christian Cederberg? They, They did. They did. And the only the only argument they had left in the Senate was a process one. You know, so they made it about this unfair process, muddled process. They should have done more work. And by making it about a process argument over what is perhaps the most important substantial issue that I've experienced in my lifetime, whether or not this thing happened and, uh, and, you know, a person who's in this most coveted and most, you know, revered office is using his power inappropriately to make the process argument and not get to the substance when it would have caused no further harm and actually probably would have been better for any chance of healing in the short term in this country. They went with the process argument and because it's all they had. So I get the politics of it, but from a character and from a trust and to your point, judgment, that was the wrong decision. I, I don't know how else to say it more definitively. It was not just the wrong decision. It was, it was a tragedy. It was a travesty in my opinion. I agree 100%. Sorry to get so animated, but it sounds like it got you worked up too. Does your association take yeah. political positions? Do you endorse candidates? We uh, we don't endorse candidates, but we do raise money for candidates. And we did so, you know, we, we do so on both sides of the aisle, you know, because again, this is not, you know, when you've got Senator Gardner and Senator Warren co-sponsoring legislation, I wish I wish there was a lot more of that in this country where people that are at least perceived to have radically different views are able to come together on things that they agree on. And it's our job to support the people that support us. And, you know, we can each have our own political views and our own, you know, party affiliations or, you know, whatever, but we support both. But at, you know, at the end of the day, I can't speak for the organization, the, you know, the, the trade organization or the, the federal lobbying organizations that work for, but from our law firm's perspective, we thought it was a very important thing to to see fundamental change for our country, not just for this issue, but for our country. God bless you for that. And now you're speaking as the person, Christian Cederberg, the proud product of, what was it, St. Vincent de Paul and then Regis? Yep. And 
see you law school, but yep. you had the benefit of a good Jesuit education at Regis. Your name is Christian. I have to ask you as a mm-hmm. Jewish person, how does Trump convince all those religious Christian types to support him? He's the most amoral president in our history. Explain it to me. It's It's been just incredibly disappointing uh, to, to, you know, to watch how people of faith, you know, and it's, it's, this is a tricky one, right? Because I know people that are genuinely, they care immensely about particularly the abortion issue. And they also care about what they feel is, you know, persecution of religious people by people on the left. And, and so they say we can suspend all of our, you know, character judgments about the person and say that this party and this approach is a better one for our interests, particularly when it comes to abortion, as we're seeing play out with our new Supreme Court now justice, you know, and so that is what I think they hang their hat on from the conversations I've had and from the public statements. But it's just so hypocritical to say that we support this and it's disqualifying for anyone. And, And a guy like Joe Biden, who's a Catholic, who, you know, is a practicing Catholic to to be painted as someone who can't understand or appreciate these issues, who's trying to separate church from state in terms of how he approaches the issues like abortion, but then to not just be argued with and have, you know, good arguments about it or, or, or discussions, but to be painted as not someone who could possibly be a person of faith when we have, frankly, a president who obviously doesn't strike me as having the same moral values or morality as many people of faith, including, in my opinion, Joe Biden. And, and to, to give him the pass because of an issue, it, it's, it's, it's part of what's wrong with, unfortunately, our, our democracy right now. And, you know, people can choose whatever they want for whatever reasons they want. But to suspend all opinions, like it'll be interesting when, you know, we, we get back to what I'll call normal, be it this elect, you know, after this election or in the future, at some future election, when a candidate has some sort of small misstep and, you know, that someone has an affair or even like inappropriate text messages and they're condoned as being an immoral person, how can we vote for this? Well, that doesn't seem to, to qualify as disqualifying for me anymore if you're a person on the Christian right, because you threw that all out the window with this president. Well, there are a bunch of good points well expressed by you. And I think the headline is attorney for the drug industry condemns president as amoral. And here's a guy who brags (laughs) about never drinking or smoking marijuana or doing anything like that. But you and I agree, he is amoral. And It's just something that Ted Cruz observed about him when he was running against him, how the religious right guys like Ted Cruz have folded to what appears to me to be a clear charlatan. And forget about his amorality. What about his incompetence with COVID? I know. I mean, Christian, you manage this huge law firm. You're the head of an association. Can you imagine keeping on somebody with the performance record of this guy? No, and the COVID stuff, I mean, it, it drives me crazy because it's obviously uh, people are struggling, companies are struggling. We're we're managing through it because we don't have a storefront. I don't operate a bar, a restaurant, or a club, but it's still been very difficult. We've had to make some tough decisions and the uncertainty is tough. But from, you know, the question that was asked in the first, I guess it was in the vice presidential debate that, God, I wish they would just answer and maybe I've just missed it, but they keep saying we saved all these lives and we did all these things, right? And and if we wouldn't have, you know, stopped the entry from China. But the question was asked, why do we have such a higher percentage per capita of deaths than every other country? 
because Europe is not experiencing the same per capita deaths. We are way above everyone else in terms of deaths. And if you're just judging it on how many people have died, not just how many people get throw up this like our stupid arguments about testing, you know, just think about the fact that 200 some thousand people have now died in this country. Over 230. And on a per capita basis, that's way higher than anywhere else in the in the developed world. Right. How do you respond to that? And 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 Vice President Pence ducked it, ducked it nicely by just not answering the question. I wish there would have been a follow up. But how do you answer that question? So yeah, they they've they, they've failed. And you know the the constant blame game of you know it's the governors were in charge, but I don't support them. The fact that our National Guard here in Colorado had to be out at the planes that were bringing in PPE lest they get hijacked by the federal government. That, that is just, that sounds like we're talking about a, a banana Republic or something, right? Right. That doesn't sound like the, the America and his family members, my, most of my family, many of my family members are in the, the healthcare industry and they're not political people. And frankly, you know, I don't know my parents, I don't know who they're going to vote for, but they, you know, they kind of come from this old school mentality, but the utter failure on COVID and just to see how much more suffering, you know, look, I know it's coming back. It's their second wave happening everywhere else, but the fact that so many people have died and it's unnecessary. And the only way to argue is that it would have been worse. Well, you set the bar at 50, then it was a hundred, then it was 150, then it was the under 200. And like, we, we keep exceeding all these things. And now it's as though there is no problem. And there's jokes being made at rallies about, Oh, you have to take your mask off when you eat or whatever that stupid joke was like, it's infuriating to me, right. but I don't even have someone close to me that died. If I had someone close to me that died, I don't know how I'd ever forgive the person. Right. I, I, frankly, I, 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 I don't know that I can anyways, but I'm not in a position like someone who's lost a loved one and couldn't even be there to say goodbye. And it's like, it, it, it like frustrates me to my core, put aside my law degree, my whatever, like just to think about the fact that I'm lucky enough to have the healthcare you know, he got sick and he's immediately taking every experimental drug and doing everything and being monitored at all times and then throwing it back in our faces, honestly. So, well, Craig, you got me all worked up about this, obviously. Calm down. Take some Regeneron. Yeah, yeah he got it for compassionate <laughs> use, the guy who has no compassion whatsoever for anybody else. And now they're going for herd immunity because he got sick. He says everybody should get sick. Let's just open up. It's not going to happen because people have better sense than that. But speaking of good common sense, I bet you were involved that day that Michael Hancock said, we're going to shut all of Denver down, including the dispensaries. I bet your phone started ringing. Tell us behind the scenes what happened and how you got uh, the, the marijuana dispensaries opened up. Yeah, and there was a bunch of people, obviously, that were immediately jumping up and working on this. And you know, from all sorts of different perspectives, the explanation that day too, when all of a sudden there was massive lines at liquor stores and, and marijuana stores and that sort of adjustment they made immediately, full credit to them for, for making the adjustment. But, you know, there's just a lot of people saying, look, we, we can do this safely. We've been thinking about this. Like we already have all these safety precautions in place and there's no reason we can't provide a product to people that is something that they they want and like stress and other things. I'm not suggesting you should be smoking or drinking to self-medicate for the, the crazy stress everyone was under. But in Massachusetts, we were actually counsel on a, we fought a, we, we fought a lawsuit against the governor because he did not do that. And their argument was they kept liquor stores open, but not marijuana stores. And the argument was, and they won on this argument, I might add. So for the lawyers that are listening, you know, it was a rational basis standard that we had to, that they had to meet. Their argument was that we kept liquor stores open, but shut down marijuana stores 
because you can die from alcohol withdrawal, but you can't die from marijuana withdrawal. And they won on that point. But you know, we got a messaging and moral victory out of it, and certainly thereafter they opened it. Fortunately, we didn't have to deal with that here in Colorado. You know, Gov- uh, Mike, you know, Mayor Hancock, you know, was just trying to do his best. That was a crazy time, and he definitely got an earful from a bunch of different people, a bunch of different directions. And you know, there was a number of of community leaders that that stepped up. John Bailey comes to mind as uh, you know someone who's leading the Black Cannabis Equity Initiative, who's been an activist and a political you know, uh, involved person, Coach Bailey. I don't know if you know, John, the coach basketball coach. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, he was also there kind of advising that this is something that, you know, is, uh, should be rethought, you know, should be thought through. And well, well, that's cool. And, and how is the marijuana business during COVID times? It's been going very well in terms of the stores and their sales. So we, we keep breaking monthly records. This is going to be the largest year of sales. You know, we could, it's you know we're looking at around two billion in sales. These are two billion dollars of sales, and we haven't seen massive increases in marijuana consumption. So, if you think about it, this is two billion dollars of sales that would not that would have been going through an underground illegal market with no taxes being paid and no regulations on product safety. And we've seen through this pandemic that the sales have just continued to increase. Now, probably that's because some more people. You know, I joke about how people are stuck at home and we're all watching Netflix and Hulu and Prime and whatever. So maybe it's more conducive to sitting on the couch and doing it. But, you know, sales are good. The problem is that, you know, when when all of the business tension starts and people are getting, you know, want to save their money and not, you know, so people that were trying to get money to grow their workforce or expand their facilities, a lot of that, you know, those deals were disrupted. So even though the sales maintained, it created a difficult business environment in terms of fundraising and and some other things. And then obviously people just had employees getting sick and not being able to come in. And so it it was a tough environment, but we count ourselves as very lucky compared to, you know, my friends that own bars and restaurants and clubs and other things, like I mentioned, because, you know, there's a lot of luck. I know it. So let's leave on an optimistic note. It's uh, Halloween. That's special. The election's upcoming. What's the bright future you foresee, Christian Cederberg? You know, uh, the bright future I see is that we don't have to talk about this election anymore. I know that's not as positive as you're looking for, but that's my joke. We don't have to to talk about Trump anymore. That's finally. Yeah. Although, in fairness, he's not going away. I hate to bring that up. He's no right. Nope, he's not. Even if he, you know, if he loses and by not going away, I mean, even if he feeds power peacefully and all that, which is a whole nother thing we could talk about for another hour. But if he just isn't elected, I mean, that base of people and that 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 uh, anger, frustration, whatever you want to call it, that he's fomented over the last four years, it's going to translate into, I'm sure, the Trump channel with Sean Hannity and, and others. And, you know, it's just going to create a, an interesting, interesting divide in our politics. But that being said, I think that the positive thing out of this is hopefully, we, uh, you know, is, is getting back to some level of normal and comporting ourselves to a certain level of, you know, uh, communication and other things that don't just require tearing people down, accusing them of being traitors and other things. And, and we can actually get back to some level of decency. You know, again, I know it's not true across the board, but the way that this country has devolved into finger pointing, name calling, it's always existed, but I've never seen anything like it as it is right now. And and so I look forward to moving past that no matter what happens, because, you know, that can't be the new normal. And and I think I, I, this has to be a blip, not a new normal. That's that's the that's that's the work that people have to keep 
that that's work that everyone has to do. I don't care where you come from. You got to get back to, you know, a, a common decency. Yes, that requires repudiation of Trump by the American people. God willing, that will happen on Tuesday and it won't be close. Florida will be 55, 45 for Biden and it will be over. And we can extrapolate from that. Pennsylvania will clearly go that way. I find it remarkable that a top lawyer for the marijuana industry parrots my description of what needs to happen next, make America normal again. But you guys love that word normal. Wasn't that the organization right. that got marijuana legalized? National organization the, for what did that stand for? for the re- National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Yeah, they've been working on this for a long time. One of our uh, partners in, in D.C. and around the country trying to trying to change things. But you know, look, people in the industry have different viewpoints. There's definitely Trump supporters. There's others, you know, Christian Cedarberg in my role as Christian Cedarberg that, you know, these are the opinions I express. And they're shared, frankly, just like the rest of the country by a lot of people that work in the industry. The crazy thing about it, which is just something interesting maybe to leave you with, is me even saying this stuff based on the, the history of what we've seen. You know, our product is still federally illegal and we're operating under a non-enforcement policy it's somewhat strange to me, not somewhat, it's very strange to me that I have to actually consider myself a little bit brave, if not a little bit fearful to speak out in such a way against a person who, who kind of controls those levers of power simply because of the punitive nature of this person said this, what can I do to destroy him? I'm not nearly important enough to, to find myself in that role, but the things we've seen happen to very good Americans, patriots, and others that were doing their patriotic duty in reporting things that they saw and heard, their careers and their lives have been destroyed. So I'm not, this is not a woe is me, but we should not live in a country where I have to watch what I say, lest I fear repercussions from powers that are very difficult to push back on. And that's the world we're living in right now. It's crazy. Let the record reflect that Christian Cederberg joined with me. I did encourage him as the host to repudiate Donald Trump. And I didn't have to urge you that hard. But I think it's an important time for everybody to speak up because this, as Joe Biden says, this is not America. And as the late Elijah Cummings said, we are better than this. Wouldn't you agree? This is something that even a graduate of George Washington and Regis High can agree on together, correct? Absolutely. We're better than this. Christian, Nobody's better than you. Keep it up. We're so proud that you are a Denver boy made really big and good. And thanks for your return visit to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. When we talk about medical directives, what sort of qualities are we looking for there? You're looking for somebody who cares about you, somebody who wants to take care of you, but also somebody who's not afraid of making that decision because you know, bad things might happen. You know, if if you have a, a son or a daughter who, you know, absolutely, you know, is, is a stereotypical mama's boy and can't imagine anything bad ever happening to his mom, and then suddenly has to make a decision about what kind of surgery mom needs to have, or, you know, are we going to, what treatment option are we gonna have for mom, and paralyzed by, oh no, I can't have anything bad happen to mom. Not the right person. So you want somebody who can look at a situation, still loves their, still loves the person, but is able to do do what's right and do what's necessary for 
your parents or for whoever you have that you're acting on behalf of. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. Happy Halloween, Troubadour. Happy Halloween, Craig. Tell us, Dave Gunders, is Halloween a big deal? Did you and your band entertain people on Halloween? And what was that like? Oh, well, my band, the Mighty Twisters, we we played uh, some places in Boulder, some favorite spots, always on Halloween. We're a fun Halloween, but it's the greatest to play on Halloween. Everybody's out in costume, dancing around, having a great time. As a father, did you take your daughter's trick-or-treating? And what did you do to spice up the scariness of Halloween? Oh, well, that was the best. The best Halloween ever was being a father to two young young daughters and taking them around, trick-or-treating. You know, we would, we would come up with all these, um, with these schemes to really do some scary stuff. Like one time I, I dressed up as a bird and sat in the tree and just kind of watched the kids as they went below, you know. Didn't scare them, but they, they were very interested. <laughs> oh, wow. That must be another Boulder experience, right? It was up in Boulder. Once yeah. you go over that Davidson Mesa, everything changes. And you are proof of that. But you're in Denver area now. Have you voted yet? No. The only reason being is I'm collecting my, my daughter's ballots that are being sent from various locations. Then I'll take all of our ballots and put them in the box. Wonderful. I wait till election day. I can't believe all the people who get impatient. What if something changes? It must be the trial lawyer in me. You would never have a jury decide the verdict before they heard all of the evidence. Well, I don't know. You have a rich imagination, Craig. But right now, I think we have other things to worry about. I know. But I think if I drop it off on Election Day, I feel like I've heard all the information and I'm confident I can get it done that day. But I will say this. Everybody is getting the feeling of what it's like to be a trial lawyer while you are waiting for a verdict. It's like, come on, give us the result already. Do you feel that anxiety? Of course. Well, that's why I'm hoping for a strong margin of victory so that there would be no question, Craig, no question, no challenge. Right. May there please be a Trump repudiation. But in the meantime, we have anxiety. And I happen to have on the number one marijuana lawyer in America, Christian Cederberg, as your fellow guest this week, Troubadour Dave Gunners. Do you, by chance, with your bolder and musical background, have any songs that touch on the topic of marijuana? Craig, my song, Don't Give Me No Vape, and I'm going to put it out there to Christian. You are going to put out to Christian Cedarberg your song, Don't Give Me No Vape? Yes, I'm, I'm putting it out there. I'm putting that song out there today to Christian. Is it self-explanatory? It's just, I just had some fun. If you listen to it, it's probably... Uh, you, it'll probably come to you, but it's 
I guess it's about an old school guy who likes to smoke. Not uh, he doesn't like the idea of an electronic vape. Oh, I thought my old partner Dan Kaplan might get excited that you were coming out against the whole prospect by saying, "Don't give me no vape. You want something with fire? Let's give everybody a listen. Don't give me no vape by our troubadour, Dave Gunders." Last night I was out playing Twisters were rocking and wailing Everybody on the floor Dancing till the early morn Later I became no wiser Token on a vaporizer And though I tried I could only sigh Cause I felt forlorn I said, boys, won't you listen to what I'm saying? You tell me that it's kind, but there's a price we're paying. So don't give me no vape this evening. I need a strong hit I can believe in. I want to fill my lungs. Shine like the sun And I don't need it to be mellow I want to suck it down deep Till I bellow Coughing out in plumes Till I feel the room I get higher with fire Oh, I do So pass another hit across her face words stuck in her throat afraid she might rock the boat I think of all the things it might be do I no longer make you happy and if you cannot tell me straight well how can I accommodate I say Such a long time And you can say What's on your mind So don't give me no vape this morning I don't need a fair trigger warning Cause it's the truth I seek Don't need it to be easy
Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow the Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Thanks a lot for being a part of this special Happy Halloween show. Let me give you one of my impressions, Bella Lugosi. My name is Count Dracula. I want to suck your blood. I do not want to suck anybody's blood, but I do want the Donald Trump presidency to get beaten. And that red wave should be a trickle of blood from him getting crushed. Nothing physically bad should happen to the man, but he needs to go. He needs to be repudiated, not just by the American people, but by the Republican Party after that. Will it happen? The first part, I expect. The second part, it's going to take time. That's why we will all be back next Saturday to comment on what happened with the election. For the record, I predict a Biden victory handily. Hickenlooper will crush Gardner in Colorado, and I hope Lauren Boebert loses. Please let that happen. We do not need QAnon in Colorado. We don't need any more Trumpism either. Lauren Boebert is a manifestation of that. And if Trump loses but Boebert wins, that's a sad day for Colorado. She will be the Colorado Republican leader. That's how far they have fallen. Donald Trump has screwed up this country, and it will take a lot for us to get through it. But the first part is for him to lose. And everybody who said that this would all end on November 4th, the pandemic, COVID talk, I wish. But it's not a hoax. Donald Trump sold you on the idea that this is a hoax aimed at you for being a Trump follower. But that is just ridiculous. This is a virus, science is involved, and all the hucksterism of Donald Trump will not change those facts. I am on the record now opposing vehemently with this podcast and by all means necessary, the re-election of Donald J. Trump. I put on thoughtful guests who normally don't talk about politics, like Gerard Rudofsky, who has not done a podcast before or really spoken out because he was a businessman, and who wants to jeopardize their business? Lisa Thomas has great business as a therapist. Thank you, Lisa, for being a guest. Thank you, Gerard. And, of course, Christian Cederberg, who stepped outside his business role. He's a big wig in the cannabis industry that needs friends on all sides. But as attorneys, we have to speak up when we see such a threat to the rule of law and democracy and America as we know it and love it. Let's take patriotism back. If you have not voted, like me, I haven't voted yet. I wait till the last minute, but I will vote, and I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. And I'm going to vote against all the Republicans who have allowed what was called by Jared Kushner the silent 
hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Not so silent. Jared said it out loud to Bob Woodward. His father-in-law took over the Republican Party, and that means the Republican Party was pretty weak because Trump is weak. Trumpism is bad. Thank you for listening. Go vote. Happy Halloween. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.